0: Isaiah chapter six. And I'll just prep you ahead of time. We are gonna read, we are gonna read the whole thing. The word of the Lord says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, in turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O oh Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant Lord God, this morning you have a message that is not new for us and yet at the same time it is a very profound message that you don't want us to overlook. You don't want us to forget. And you want us to see that that really this message is the whole message of Scripture. And so Lord, may you just... um, Help us, our hearts and our minds and our eyes, to be open, to not be dull, and to receive anew the food of your word, the the message that you have set up from the beginning of time and yet manifested through your son, Jesus Christ, and may it just refresh our souls this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So today we are in the book of Isaiah, and this is one of the most important books in the whole Old Testament. It is so important in terms of its theology that it is often referred to as the Romans of the Old Testament. Because in this 66-chapter book, the threads of God's big-picture purposes for His people and for the world come together and are most clearly seen And in our time together this morning, we're going to begin to unpack those threads. And hopefully what we're going to see is their significance for the people of Israel in their day, and hopefully their significance for us as his people today, and then ultimately for the whole world. But before we get there, we need to understand a little bit about kind of what this book is about and its background. So first, what we know is that it was written by the prophet Isaiah, which is obviously why the book bears his name. And though many scholars believe that there may have been a final editor or compiler of the book, most conservative scholars and theologians primarily believe that this this book was written mostly by Isaiah. And even though historical references in the book are few, we can gather that this book was written and put together sometime in the 7th century B.C., In fact, Isaiah records the death of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, which happened in 681 BC. And so the book was put together at least in its final form after that. And now one of the first things we learn about this book and about Isaiah, it happens right away in Isaiah 1.1, which says, "...the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah." And so what we learn this that this book is a vision. And it's a vision of Isaiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which means that this book is a prophetic book. And in fact, it is the, it is the first prophetic book in Scripture. And since it's coming from Isaiah, we conclude that Isaiah is a prophet. And now if you're wondering what a prophet is... It can be defined in this way. But bear in mind, this definition that I'm giving, it applies only to Old Testament prophets and then not to the gift of prophecy that is talked about in the New Testament. But here it is. A prophet is someone who proclaimed a message or vision given to them by God. They spoke in God's name by his authority and were sent to teach his people while also revealing future events to come. And so Isaiah is God's mouthpiece, speaking with God's authority to both teach God's people while also revealing the realities of the future to come. And as far as the setting of this prophetic vision, we also know that Isaiah had this vision during the times of kings, and those kings were Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And now, I'm not going to spend a time, like a ton of time, giving you sort of a super in-depth look at what's happening in the life of Judah during this time. If you want to do that, in particular, you can look at 2 Kings 15 through 20 and then 2 Chronicles 25 through 32. That'll cover the span of, of all of these kings. But I will say the following: that Isaiah began prophesying at the end of Uzziah's life, and particularly when the Assyrians were beginning to take control of the surrounding nations, including Babylon. And within five to ten years of Uzziah's death, they quickly became the main threat both to Israel and Judah. And this threat remained all throughout the 8th century B.C. And that at home in Judah, it became clear from, from both Isaiah's vision and from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that, that although Judah was not as bad as the northern kingdom of Israel, and remember we've talked about in previous weeks that Israel split, and it split into the northern kingdom of Israel, and then there is a southern kingdom Of Judah. So Judah wasn't as bad as the northern kingdom, but they were still walking away from God. They were given to worshiping other gods. And in turmoil, in times of turmoil, they were trusting in other nations to save them instead of trusting in Yahweh, the one true God. And this is ultimately why God sent Isaiah to them. And as he was sent, he proclaimed God's vision to his people. And what he did is he brought to them these following realities. In chapters 1 through 39, it just gives you a little bit more background here. The setting is the Assyrian threat of the 8th century BC. The audience is God's rebellious people desiring worldly security. And the reality that he brought to them is that judgment is coming. And kind of the resounding message that keeps coming back is that if they return to God and trust in him alone, that they will be saved. And then in chapters 40 to 55, the setting of that is actually a future prophecy about the sixth century BC. And then the audience of that is God's people who are in exile, and right? We've learned about that in other books as well. And yet the reality he's bringing is that God will fulfill his promises. And he says to them, don't worry, your sin will be pardoned and God's glory will be revealed. And then in chapters 56 to 66, the setting is a future prophecy about the coming of the end the audience there is all who hold fast to Christ. So it's not just it's not just Judah that he's talking to, but it's all believers throughout all time. And then the reality that he is bringing is that glory is coming, and they will receive that glory if they endure to the end. And if we put all of this together, we begin to see this overarching message that emerges: that we need just as much as the people of Judah needed. And it's the reality that we need to live as as if judgment is coming, but because of Christ, so is glory. I'll say that forever, or again. It's the reality that we need to live as if judgment is coming, but because of Christ, so is glory. And so this morning, we're gonna unpack in this message um, we're going to unpack this particular message as we look at the following four realities that are woven all throughout Isaiah 6 and the book as a whole, and they're this. One, that God is the holy creator and king of the universe. Two, that judgment is real and it's coming. Three, that grace and forgiveness are available through Christ. And then four, that God's glorious kingdom is also coming. And my hope this morning is that we will walk away from this message and from this book with a renewed sense of the grandeur and glory of our great God and King. That judgment is just as real in our day as it was in the days of Judah. That we will have a renewed sense of our need for Christ as our only hope. And then lastly, that we will be a people who live in the reality that this world is not our home. That Christ is coming and with him, he is bringing eternal glory. But let's begin where Isaiah 6 begins, with this reality that God is the holy creator and king of the universe. Isaiah 6, 1-4 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So if you are unfamiliar with this part of Isaiah, um, and particularly in chapter six, this is the place where God reveals himself to Isaiah and then he is commissioning him as a prophet, to go out and to speak God's vision and God's message to his people. But instead of going directly into his commission and call, God has has Isaiah, I almost said Uzziah, God has Isaiah start out by recalling his vision and experience of God. And the first thing he tells us is that the Lord, God himself, was sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and that the train of his robe filled the temple. And this not only presses into the hearer and the reader and Isaiah himself the bigness and greatness of our God, but it also reminds us that God is on an exalted throne as the king of the universe. He rules over all things, including all the earthly rulers. This includes the kings of Israel and Syria and Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and all the kings of Judah. And there is not a single king in, in or kingdom in the world for all times that God does not rule over he is as the bible says the king of kings and the lord of lords but the vision of god doesn't stop there we're told that the seraphim are there and that they're not only covering their feet with wings they're also covering their eyes as they proclaim it in a repeated fashion holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory The repetition of that word holy along with the covered eyes and feet of the seraphim. It points us to the truth that God is not only morally pure and perfect, but also he is so otherly and he is so beyond his creatures that that we are unable to look on him in his perfections. And yet despite the fact that God is so otherly, that he is so beyond us, his glory is His majesty, his his brilliance and his presence, it says it fills the earth. He is a God who is present within his creation and in his goodness chooses to reveal himself to his creatures and people. This is Isaiah's way of communicating to us his grand experience of God and with it, he is building for God's people this grand vision of who God is in the fullness of his glory. And in fact, this isn't just contained within Isaiah 6, but this is something that he does all throughout the book of Isaiah. In fact, look with me at the following verses. Isaiah 12, 6. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Again, this is bringing to us this, this greatness and holiness and otherworldliness of our God. And then in Isaiah 40:25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? says the Holy One. The reality that there is nothing else in all the created universe that is like God. He is completely set apart from everything in all creation. And then in Isaiah 45, verses 7, 9, and 12, I form light and create darkness, I make well being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Then verse 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? Then verse 12, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Just a reminder to us that God created everything. Everything we see, everything we don't see, he created all of it, including us. And then finally, Isaiah 48, 11. I love this verse. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That God does all things, all things for himself and for his purposes. Yes, he does things for us, but even in the things that he does for his people, it is ultimately for his purposes and his glory. And this grand vision of God is something that the people of Judah needed. They had forgotten the reality of who their God was as their holy creator and king, and instead they were trusting in lesser false gods to satisfy them and in created beings to save them. And in the same way, we need our grand vision of God renewed. We're so prone, we are so prone to trust in earthly things, earthly treasures, earthly institutions, earthly conceptions of the good life, that we forget the reality that we have a holy God who created us and continually sustains us. And as I said, he does that for his purposes. He has a reason that he created you, and he didn't create you for you. He created you for himself. And he is the only one who is worthy of our trust. He is the only one who is worthy of our worship. He is the only one that is, that, that is greater than anything in all creation and nothing compares with him. And right now, right now, he is seated on a throne, high and lifted up, calling us as his people to fear him, to stand in awe of him, to give him the honor and reverence that is due his name. And only when we rightly understand the reality of his holiness and greatness as our king and our creator will we then be able to understand the judgment and glory to come and also the forgiveness that he holds out to us as his people. And that's our second point this morning, that judgment is real and it is coming. Isaiah 6, 9 through 12. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and the houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. As I said at the beginning, it was becoming clear in Judah that the people of God were walking away from him. They were given to worshiping other gods, and in times of turmoil, they were trusting in other nations to save them instead of trusting in Yahweh, the one true God. And we can see this. We can particularly see this in the events of 2 Kings 16. And that's where King Ahaz came to power. And if you don't know a lot about Ahaz, all you really need to know is that he was a very evil king. In fact, it says that he did, walked in all of the evil practices of the kings uh, of, the, kings of the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And then it goes on to say of him in 2 Kings 16.3 that he did this. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And then there was a time when, when when trouble came, and trouble came not only from Syria, but actually also from the northern kingdom of Israel. They came upon Judah and tried to attack him. And yet instead of trusting in God, what Ahaz did is he decided, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the king of Assyria to come and save us. And it says in Second Kings 16.7, so Ahab sent messengers to Tiglath, Pilazer, I think I pronounced that right, of Assyria saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Assyria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And beyond Ahaz, we have people like Uzziah and Jotham. And when we read their stories, we're like, oh, they're not as bad as Ahaz. They're pretty good. And yet they still committed similar sins. They were supposed to take down the high places where the people of Israel would go up to to offer sacrifices. But God had said, don't do that. And instead, they were still worshiping false conceptions of God. And then even though Hezekiah, he actually tore down the high places and it says that he trusted God, yet still, even Hezekiah himself, this Assyrian threat came back upon them and instead of trusting God, he tried to pay them off. He's like, no, if I, just, if I just give him all the money out of the treasury, then surely the king of Assyria will go. And it turns out he didn't, it didn't work. And all of this points to the truth that God's kings and his people, that they were not walking according to his commands. And because of this, God commissions Isaiah and tells him to go to his people. And in his going, he is to speak to the people and proclaim, I believe, what is two kinds of judgment. And the first one is seen in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6, where God is telling the people of Judah through Isaiah that they will no longer see and understand the things of God. He will make their hearts dull and their eyes blind. This is God literally using Isaiah to proclaim that he will harden the hearts of his people so they can't follow him. Just let that sink in for a minute. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine all of a sudden just the reality of God saying to us at LEFC, you don't get to see. And I'm not talking literally with our eyes, but with our hearts. And all of a sudden, we have no conception of the living God, no ability to follow him. And he's doing this because his people have chosen to forsake him and trust in other things. And then there's the second judgment, which flows from the first, and it comes in verses 11 and 12. And God tells his people that because of their continual and habitual sin and hardness of heart, that he is going to lay Judah to waste and is going to remove them from the land. And so because of their sin, God is hardening his people And then that removal from the land is ultimately going to be the exile that comes in the 6th century. And now as much as this message is very specific, that message of exile is very specific for the people of Judah. And yet I still believe it has application for us today. As we look at the landscape of churches and Christians around us, we can observe a few things that, though they seem commonplace today, should very much grieve our hearts We see churches and Christians that have decided to capitulate to culture and instead of standing upon the truth of God's word, and in order to remain relevant, they they have decided that they're willing to redefine uh, human sexuality based on what the secular world says instead of fighting for the inerrant and unwavering truth of the Bible. We see people who grew up in the church having their hearts and minds blinded as they go through this process of what is popular today, popularly called today deconstruction. Maybe you've heard that word. And they're deconstructing their faith that they grew up with in such a way that either they abandon Christianity altogether, or they redefine it in some ways that no longer looks like biblical Christianity. We see Christians who are putting more trust in fighting issues and electing right people instead of reaching out to their neighbors with the life, with the life and culture-changing reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see believers in churches that are more concerned with fighting culture wars on the internet than they are with knowing and treasuring and preaching the word of God. And that's true regardless of what side, you know. You might you might have people in mind, oh, it's those conservatives, oh, it's those liberals. It's true on either side. And in all these things, we are in danger of becoming a people who hear but don't understand and see, but don't perceive. We are in danger of missing God and his simple call to know him, to love him and to trust him. And then from that, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if we, the church in America, continue down this path and put our hope and trust in something else besides him, then scripture says that our end will be judgment. And we may be in danger of hearing the faithful words of Jesus in Matthew seven, twenty-three, when he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so my call to all of us is to take seriously this warning from Isaiah. Examine your hearts. See where else what else you have put your trust in besides the triune ruler of the universe. Are you trusting in institutions? Are you trusting in philosophy? Are you trusting in a cultural religion? And if you examine yourself and you see that in you, you see, yes, I'm doing that. I'm trusting in something else besides Christ and Christ alone. I want to call you first and foremost to confession and repentance. Confess your sin to God and turn to Him in faith and humility. But secondly, I do want to give you some good news. This isn't all doom and gloom, right? I don't, I don't generally, I don't generally preach a message that's all doom and gloom. But there is good news. And this good news is the reality that, that the whole of Scripture is pointing to, including much of the book of Isaiah. And it's this. This is our third point this morning. That grace and forgiveness are available through Christ. Isaiah 6, verses 5 to 7, and then 13. it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, and I love this: the holy seed is its stump. And That's important. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So Isaiah, after seeing this grand vision of God, he is so overcome with his own sin and the sin of the people of Judah that he basically proclaims that he's lost, meaning that he believes he's going to die. He's like, that's it, I've seen God, we are so sinful, I'm done. And it would have been well within God's right to do that. As a holy and perfect God, he could have wiped out Isaiah and he could have wiped out the people of Judah and that would have been well within within his right because they are a sinful people and they deserve nothing but his wrath. And yet God in his mercy and goodness, he doesn't do that. Instead, he has the seraphim take this this piece of coal and he presses it against Isaiah's lips as a way to symbolically show him that God has taken away his guilt and has atoned for his sin. And then when Isaiah is is sent out to proclaim judgment on Judah, he doesn't leave them without hope either. But instead, he ends verse 13 by saying, the holy seed, and actually that that word seed actually can be translated offspring. Offspring. The holy offspring is its stump. Meaning that though he is bringing judgment upon them, he's not going to completely destroy them. Instead, there will be a remnant of Judah that he chooses to pour his goodness and his grace upon. And it will be from this remnant that God will raise up a shoot and a branch that not only will be for the flourishing of the remnant, but also will be for all people from all nations who come to him. As it says in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And then in verses 10 and 11, in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And we know, we know that this branch, that this shoot from the root of Jesse, who bears fruit and who gathers the nations and the remnant to himself, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The one, as it says in Isaiah 53, 12, who bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. By the way, I love this verse. And I love this verse because you cannot, there is no way that you can slice it to make this about anybody else except Christ. Right? That's amazing. Realizing that Isaiah was preaching 700 and some years before Jesus. I love that. And in so doing, he has not only given us as his people grace and forgiveness, but he has healed us through his death on the cross so that we now can be free of sin and can live for his good and righteous purposes. Look at these verses from the New Testament. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So this is the apex. This is the apex of the grand message that Isaiah is trying to communicate, that God is holy, and because God is holy, judgment is coming upon his people because of their sin. And yet he hasn't left them or us without hope. Instead, he tells them, don't worry, a savior is coming. And we know that he has come in the person and work of Christ to redeem a people for himself. And now as I preach this, as I bring this to you, I realize even as I was typing this out, um, that this message, this gospel message that we talk of a lot, it can feel like something like um, two plus two, right? Right? It can feel elementary in one sense because it's it's the reason we're all here. It's it's the first thing that we heard or right or needed to believe before we could come in here and call ourselves a believer. But I do believe it's something that we need to continually bring to our minds and hearts. Right? We can't get beyond the gospel. Because the gospel is not only the the power of salvation for all who believe, but it's the power to live out this thing we call the Christian life. That there is a God who has not only saved us, but yet that same God, again, is holding us, has us secure, and is going to bring us to the end. We also need to know that we're not left to fend for ourselves. We're not left to fend for ourselves in our sin, but there is real hope for us that is found fully and wholly in the work of Christ on our behalf. And so I do want to encourage you this morning, if, if you're here, whether you're a, a believer, you consider yourself a believer, or whether you consider yourself not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are walking in sin, if you're feeling the weight of your guilt and you feel condemned, I want to call you to turn to Christ. He is the fountain of living water who not only gives you new life, but is freely and fully and wholly forgiven you of your sin for all time. So that if you believe in him and you follow him, you can live in the joy and in the assurance that you are a child of God this morning. And if you're here, and again, you you are unsure of that, I would encourage you to come talk to me. You can talk to one of the other elders. We want to help you to know for sure that you are a child of God this morning. And not only does he want us to live in the assurance that, that we are his children, but he also wants each of us to live in and take seriously the reality that this world, what we see around us, is not our home. And because this isn't our home, scripture also tells us the good news that he is coming back for us. And that's the last reality this morning, that God's glorious kingdom is coming. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. God's grand vision for his people as proclaimed through Isaiah It opens with two chapters that sort of feel like an introductory summary of the whole book. And then what it does is it's actually worked out over the ensuing 64 chapters. In chapter one, if you read that this week, it is all about judgment. And if that's all you read, you probably felt pretty terrible coming out of that. But then comes chapter two. And chapter 2 is so good because it doesn't allow us to wallow in just the reality of judgment and wrath. Instead, it encourages and excites our hearts with the hopeful reality of what it calls, or what it says is the latter days. That this current world and God's judgment, they aren't the end. But instead, there is a glorious time coming when God will come back and will establish the mountain of the house of God of the Lord, meaning that God is going to come back to renew his creation and will dwell with his people here on earth. Look with me at Isaiah 65, verses 17 and 18. It says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness if you're a believer here this morning, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news is that this applies to you. But I want you to know that though this reality is comforting and it's very hopeful, God hasn't just given us this vision from Isaiah for our comfort alone. Instead, this whole book and this whole message this morning that God is our holy creator, that judgment is coming, that grace and forgiveness are available through Christ, and that glory is also coming, that it is meant to remind us that this world and everything in it, they can't can't save us. And this should stir in our hearts and grow within us a desire to be a people that continually confess our sin, that turn to Christ, and that live out and proclaim the excellencies of our great God and King. In fact, we should be people that heed the words of Isaiah 2.5 when he says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in light of the Lord. Walk in the light of the Lord. And we need to do that as God's people because judgment is real. And what you see today is passing away. And in the end, as we just heard Christ is coming. Let's pray. Lord God, I know for myself, even in putting this message together and in thinking about your holiness as our creator and thinking about the reality of judgment and, and yet the grace and forgiveness available through Christ and even looking to the reality of our eternity to come, I know That my heart can look at these things almost in an overly intellectual way. Almost in the sense of, oh, I know them, they're they're nothing new. And yet, Lord, these are realities that that, that are meant to enthrall our hearts. That are meant to overwhelm us in such a way that, that we are a people who not only stand in awe of you as God... But because of judgment, we we do live with a healthy fear and trembling as we work out our salvation. And yet to the the magnificent reality that we can stand on the forever hope that we have in Christ because of the grace and forgiveness that he has given us. And yet to be excited, to live with anticipation, to work with the idea that, that you are coming back, that there is a day when you will come and you will renew your world and you will dwell with us as your people. That's exciting. And Lord, I pray that that you will take these truths today and that you will sink them deep into our hearts, that we will be a people who leave this place just desiring in all things to proclaim the excellencies of who you are as our God our Father, our Friend, our Savior, and our Lord until that day that you return. And we just pray all of this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.